and welcome to What About Us, a podcast that discusses how policies, history, and culture affect rural Tennesseans. I'm Sandy Rice, and I've been doing this podcast since June of 2019. All episodes are available wherever you download your favorite pods. I want to thank the Tennessee Holler for including me in their podcast network. Go to tnholler.com to check out the other podcasts, sign up for the newsletter, and make a donation. Also check out the Holler on Twitter and Facebook. Regular listeners may have noticed that I have added history and culture to my description and some new music. Studying history enables us to develop a better understanding of the world in which we live. Knowledge and historical events and trends, especially over the last century, enable us to develop a much greater appreciation of current events today. And you all know how I like to add a little history base to all of our um, subjects. So what about culture? So a basic definition would be the norms and practices of a particular group of people. Also the expressions of people as in art, music, food, language, religion, and architecture within a society as the society seek to assign meaning to their lives or people seek to assign meaning to their lives and their circumstances. I think the South has a culture maybe more than any other part of America. Look at our food, our music, our language, and college football. My guest today is my friend and book club buddy for over 15 years, Dr. Renee Shadman. Welcome, Renee. Thank you so much. So glad to be here, Sandy. I was teasing her that I don't think she knew I had a podcast until last week. <laughs> and there she is. She's part of my staff. <laughs> So impressed. Okay, Renee is Associate Professor of Post-Colonial and World Literature at Georgia State University. Renee, tell us about your field of study. Sure. Um, I've been at you know, Georgia State for almost 20 years now, and uh, yes, a long time. But when I was brought in, Georgia State was following a trend that a lot of English departments were doing across the nation, and that was bringing in scholars who could teach literature that went beyond the British and the American canon, with the understanding that literature in the modern age is no longer easily classified in those two camps. There's a lot of movement between nations, between uh, writers are constantly on the move as well too. So it's it, those labels did not seem appropriate anymore. So at the time, Georgia State hired me in order to add that element to the literature program. Since then, truthfully, the students themselves are the ones who have brought the request. In fact, we're in the midst of a, a review of our department. And one of the biggest concerns students stated on their survey was we want more diversity in what we're like, really hungry. And Georgia State is a school that has no racial majority. So it's, it's a very, um, it's a school of great plurality and students are interested in this type of literature as well. Mm -hmm. Well, I love hearing that the young people are, are hungry, like you say, for this. Mm -hmm. So what, what area do you concentrate on? So within post-colonial literature, I, I teach literature from Africa, the Caribbean, New Zealand, Australia, okay. all of those places that used to be former British colonies. Okay. But my subspecialty is in the area of Southern Africa, uh, mainly South African literature, Zimbabwean literature, uh, Botswanian literature, things along those lines. Okay. Um, I myself worked as a teacher in Zimbabwe for two years, um, many years ago in the past, but that, um, um, gave me a hunger and an interest in African literature myself. And so I went back and did my PhD in that study. Okay, okay. 
Okay, and you've been to South Africa several times. I have, yes. And most recently as a Fulbright Scholar for about a year between 2018 and 2019. Uh And you took your daughter with you. I did. It's a very unique experience for a seven-year-old in South Africa. (laughs) She's very lucky. (laughs) Yes, she is. Yes. Renee recommends the best books for our group. I love them. Sometimes they do get... Sometimes they get voted out, though, don't they? <laughs> they do. <laughs> I vote for Renee's book. <laughs> so our topic today, our subject today, is an article Renee wrote, and um, it was published in December 2020, which I fell across trying to catch up with emails. Um, it's called South Africa's Inability to Honestly Confront AIDS Shows the Dangers of America's covid 19 denialism. That's kind of a mouthful, but (laughs) tell us about that. Sure. Well, I I wrote this article and it was published in a very interesting um, venue called The Conversation, which is um, basically pieces of public scholarship written by academics, but it's meant to be for a more public audience. And um, I wrote this because having come back from South Africa, and having heard the story over in South Africa about the sad history around HIV and AIDS, I was struck time and again about how our own history with COVID was playing out in a similar kind of way. And that inspired me to kind of put all the pieces together and think about the comparison. I'm a strong believer in comparative study that you can learn something about yourself by looking at a culture that is different and yet similar to you in certain ways. So I think we can look to South Africa to try to see what lessons we can learn from their their very tragic experience with HIV. Shall I go forth and read the article? Yes, that would be great. Okay, great, thank you. It's very well written, I must say. Thank Thank you. At a time when the U.S. is experiencing one of the worst COVID-19 infection rates among wealthy nations, Americans could take some cautionary lessons from South Africa, the nation that fared the worst during the HIV AIDS epidemic because of the many stumbles and mistakes of its different governments. Some South African authors like Fitswani Mpei and Sindiwe Magona, whose works I study and teach, have written about the tragic effects of a country steeped in denialism about the virus, the ramifications of which are still being felt today. In 2019, 7.7 million South Africans were HIV positive and the HIV prevalence amongst adults ages 15 to 49 was a staggering 20%. A multi-year study tells an even more sobering story. Between 1997 and 2010, as many as 2.8 million South Africans died of HIV AIDS related causes, an average of over 200,000 deaths per year. These numbers were once incomprehensible to Americans, that is until 2020, when the US lost over 300,000 people to the coronavirus. The truth about what can happen in the absence of a carefully calibrated public health plan became painfully clear. Of course, HIV and COVID are two very different viruses. HIV is transmitted through the exchange of bodily fluid and is stigmatized. COVID-19 is passed through small droplets in a person's breath and hasn't been tied to any sense of shame. On the other hand, because COVID is transmitted through casual contact and not an intimate exchange, it spreads much more easily. With AIDS, you have to primarily think carefully about whom to sleep with. 
with COVID-19, you need to worry about getting within six feet of anyone, lover, family member, neighbor, or stranger. But despite these differences between the virus, there is one factor that has played out in tragically familiar, similar ways, neglect and misinformation at the highest levels of government. When it came to handling the AIDS crisis, South Africa soon gained notoriety for its ineptitude of its leaders. The virus first emerged in South Africa in 1982, 12 years before apartheid was abolished. At the time, the government, led by Prime Minister P.W. Botha, was consumed with unrest at home. It gave very little attention to a condition that initially seemed to affect only marginalized groups, gay men, prostitutes, drug users, and eventually the general black population. In 1994, Nelson Mandela was inaugurated as the first leader of the newly independent multiracial democracy. His administration took the virus more seriously. For example, the country's new constitution included protections against AIDS discrimination. But the administration nonetheless proved ill-prepared to handle an epidemic of such magnitude at a time when it was only beginning to put a coherent governmental infrastructure in place. Consequently, the HIV adult infection rate, which was 8% when he took office, grew to 20% by the end of his five-year term. The person most rightfully assigned the greatest blame for South Africa's AIDS debacle is Thabo Mbeki, who succeeded Mandela in 1999 and served until 2008. Mbeki used his bully pulpit to fan misinformation about the virus from insisting that AIDS was not the cause of, sorry, that HIV was not the cause of AIDS to claiming that AIDS was part of a neo-colonialist plot to continue to exploit Africa and oppress its people. The skepticism of Mbeki and his supporters was in part motivated by legitimate suspicion and resentment towards the West after centuries of forward intervention in African lives. However, it meant that HIV recommendations based on biomedical research could be dismissed as directives intended to foster African dependence on Western medicine. For example, when antiretroviral drugs were developed, Mbeki's Minister of Health urged those affected with the virus to continue taking traditional medicines and consume a diet of lemons, garlic, beetroot, and olive oil. The new drugs were, in her view, tailored for Western populations. Because of the general inattention given to AIDS, denialism continued to run deep, even as South Africans found themselves attending multiple funerals each month. The South African writer, Sindiwe Magona, described this unsettling atmosphere in her introduction to her 2008 novel, Beauty's Gift. She writes of her first trip home to South Africa in 1988 after hearing from the US about the epidemic that was ravishing her country. She writes, as we heard or read in well-reputed magazines and newspapers, nothing short of genocide was taking place in South Africa. So when I went home this last time, I was prepared to see signs of the fear I felt, see them on people's faces. Surely I thought, as I got ready for this trip, such a calamity must have everybody in South Africa in mourning garb, wearing long faces and notably devoid of joy. But she encountered an entirely unexpected scene. She writes, 
The broadly smiling faces, unbridled laughter, and wholesale hilarity were from another country. My mind refused to juxtapose the spectacle before my eyes with the horror I expected, the horror I'd gotten from the reports. How could a dying people be this gleeful? She goes on to describe the tremendous disconnect between what people were wearing to sh willing to share privately and the official public attitudes towards the illness. South Africa's tragic his AIDS history should sound disturbingly familiar to Americans. There are, of course, Donald Trump's various manifestations of denialism. His claims that COVID wasn't going to spread in the US and would magically disappear if it did take hold that lockdowns were a bigger threat than the virus itself, that hydrochloroquine was a cure-all for the hospitalized, that 99% of the cases were totally harmless, and that the virus would disappear as soon as the 2020 elections were over. These dangerous assertions have been echoed by both conspiracy theorists and government officials, and the ramifications of such information are easily observed in the portion of our population that ignores social distancing guidelines and considers mask wearing a threat to the American way of life. This comparison between South Africa and the US, as depressing as it may be, does offer some hope. Jacob Zuma, Mbeki's successor, made enormous improvements in the country's HIV response in his nine years in office. He oversaw a massive antiretroviral treatment program, making the treatments available to as many as 71% of infected adults and 47% of children. In South Africa today, there are few, if any, traces of denialist thinking. In fact, there is so much discomfort over what happened with the AIDS in the past that Tabo Mbeki is now refuting claims that he ever said HIV does not cause AIDS. But South Africa's story also carries the sobering reality that recovering from denialism takes time. And for the U.S., with cases exploding and more than 3,000 deaths per day, there isn't much time to spare. The recent FDA authorization of two effective vaccines shows there's a light at the end of the tunnel. But there will still be formidable challenges in the coming months, coordinating the distribution of that vaccine to those who need it the most, instilling patience in those who must wait their turn, and creating public health messaging for those wary of inoculation. With mixed messages from the government over the danger of coronavirus, it's no surprise that public trust in a vaccine's safety and effectiveness is lukewarm at best. An Associated Press poll from early December found that roughly 50% of Americans either weren't sure or said they definitely wouldn't get a vaccine. Unfortunately, the recovery will continue to be hindered by those who, under the spell of denialism, refuse to confront the realities of a virus that has taken such a toss costly toll on the nation. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so timely in so many ways. Yes. You know, I think, um, I think that the similarities um, between our cultures is really amazing, uh, considering that we're so many miles apart and with so many, um, you know, perceived cultural uh, differences. Um, so denialism really helps us cope with a bad situation. I mean, you could almost say that the more perilous, deadly, life-altering, expensive, heartbreaking situation, the more um, 
the greater need for denial? Well, I think that uh, it's a dangerous path to go down because it only adds to the problem, of course. And I think that we need to understand that denialism is not just saying it's not there. Denialism, it might be admitting that it's there. In fact, and Becky wasn't saying that people are not dying, but it's, it's downplaying the severity. Mm-hmm. And it's also creating confusion about the causes. Mm-hmm. And when you take those two things and put them into play, it causes a lot of confusion and people don't know how to act. There's, uh, and I think even today there's, you know, there's excitement about the vaccine. There's dread about what's happening in the hospitals right now. There's still a lot of confusion about really what is the, the right way to, to, to respond to this virus that we're facing at the moment. And I think when you don't have a clear public health message, right. Uh, then a, a society really struggles in these kind of environments. I think that the importance of public health has been made clear to to smart thinking people in this country for the first time in a long time. I, I don't think so. we I agree. Mm-hmm. Public health before that, and I think we really need to to build on that. We need to make public health a normalized concept. And so that we need school plans to come up with a public health plan, industries to come to anticipate further epidemics we might be facing and, and recognize, I mean, I think we need to just build it into as a normal part of the way that we protect ourselves, that we have public health as a, a, one of our pieces in our arsenal. Well, well, I think it's the decline in public health um, concern or finances or support uh, kind of comes along with this um, individualism, the American uh, as an individualism and freedom, individual and freedom. You, so our whole healthcare delivery system has really gone to um, um, the individual physician and the group practice and private insurance. I mean, that's what we're struggling with now is mm-hmm. the people that, that you know, can't afford that. Um, mm-hmm. And, and that the public health is kind of, well, kind of ignored, you know, people just need to kind of figure it out or get a job. Um, mm-hmm. You know, what complicates um, uh, South Africa's response to uh, COVID is their, is their health care st- structure. You were telling me that 80% are uninsured? Yes, 80% are uninsured and about 50% are living in um, dire poverty mm-hmm. right now. So they've got, they had so many strikes against them before this even came into play. But they did learn from the AIDS um, experience in that they um, had a plan, mm-hmm. uh, preparation, testing. It was just difficult to deliver it with the health system that they had. Um, but tell us about some of the things that they did do and how, how it was responded. I mean, they acted kind of, kind of quickly when they had cases. They did. They did. And just to go back to your idea of freedom for a minute, I think it, that South Africa put in a hard lockdown, a very hard lockdown initially. And um, I think it was a difficult thing for people to to tolerate. It, it went against this concept of freedom that is still fairly new in South Africa since 1994, right? And so um, uh, under apartheid, people couldn't move freely. 
they had to have a passbook with them and need to be approved before they could move from one place to another. This is a black South African population. And after apartheid, that was burned up and taken away. And people, you know, really reveled in the idea that they had movement and could uh, determine their own uh, movement. And so being locked down really goes against that concept. So that was difficult. But um, South Africa did indeed put in a very hard lockdown. Um, and uh, this was about... Uh, two months into the into the virus because they, they had a sense that uh, numbers were starting to land on their shores. And they knew that if it really uh, took hold, that it could spread very quickly, especially because so many people live in the township areas. And the townships are um, basically shacks built one on top of the other. And as one author wrote, you cannot social distance in a shack. So the, there was a clear understanding that if COVID really came to South Africa, it could move as quickly as AIDS did. And there could be a repetition of what happened with the AIDS crisis. So they did move very quickly at first and they did really lock it down. Um, and, uh, but then they, they lightened up their restrictions somewhat. This kind of overlapped recently with the school holidays when people tend to do a lot of socializing. They did close down the beaches to, to curb that to an extent, but I think that it was hard for South Africans not to be with family in a way that culturally and traditionally is just part of who they are. Um, and so numbers started to tick up again. And then we also know that that variant of the virus that has also been found in Britain and is starting to come to the US has really um, taken hold in South Africa. So that's helping to, the virus to move much more quickly. Okay. So they are now experiencing another lockdown um, on the same day that I um, I did an interview in South Africa on the 28th of December and the president had just spoken about beginning to lock things down again. So they are trying to get a hold on it as they can, but it is not an easy process given, given the way that um, people move there, the way people live. But one thing I can say about South Africans is that they feel as though they're all in a big boat, on a, in a little boat on a big ocean, and they owe each other tremendous loyalty. That's a quote from someone, but oh, okay. the idea that if one sinks, they're all going to sink. And so there's a sense that we need to do something together to make this happen. And that's what I would say in response to the question about freedom. Freedom really needs to be counterbalanced by the idea of interdependence. And the realization that we cannot leave, live entirely free lives. We are interdependent with one another, but we're also interdependent with other nations. I mean, the COVID virus didn't stay in China. <laughs> it moved. Yeah, it doesn't know boundaries or... It doesn't know boundaries. And, and our global, you know, our public health response really needs to have a global aspect to it as well, too. That's one thing I don't think has been developed enough is getting countries speaking to one another, not just about the science of the virus, but about the so sociology around around lockdown, around trying to contain uh, people's behavior in order to uh, to make this each country safer, but also the world safer as a whole. And you feel like their leadership is strong now with good information. <laughs> Yes, they have had, you know, they have had their struggles with leaders, that's for sure. But the, even Mbeki, who did such great work in, in turning the tide on HIV, had his own problems with HIV and that he, he was accused of rape and there was a big case on it. But he's and it was a woman who was HIV positive. He said he had consensual sex with her, but he took a shower afterwards. So he himself had a horrible kind of image around HIV. And yet he still managed to make those changes within the country. But now they do have a new person, uh, Cyril Ramaphosa, who is the president right now. He's very level-headed. 
And uh, I think he is a, a good person to be leading the country okay. at this time. Um, just one thing I wanted um, to, to kind of highlight um, is that they, in their culture, they travel for holidays. And you said they like to party. They do. They do. <laughs> yes. <laughs> they know how to party. Um, Hardy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. So, uh, yeah. I mean, in, in December in South Africa, it's beautiful weather. And when the beaches are open in that beautiful country, there's no place, you know, you, you all of us would like to be outside partying with other people in that circumstance. But you said that they, they eliminated alcohol. They didn't eliminate alcohol during that early lockdown. I'm not sure what the what the uh, the status of that is right now. They they do have a large, um, a pretty severe gender violence, gender um, based violence problem in the country. Right, right. So they went into lockdown. They did um, they did get rid of alcohol to try to contain that. I forgot to ask this before we started. Do do they wear masks? I yes, they do wear masks. Okay. okay. Yes. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. Yes. And I just, um, just really a, a great example of, of culture and yeah. how it affects us, um, how we have more in common than we think with people all over the world. It's not just America first. Um, right, America. right. And, and I hope that um, your article has given um, listeners uh, something to think about. You know the world, Great. and the world, the world and the news goes fast. It's and it's so stimulating. It's traffic, it's music, it's kids, TV, internet, internet gags, um, and we tend, to, I think, see a knee-jerk reaction and climb on the bandwagon and think what everybody else is thinking. But we need to. A story like yours should cause us to pause. Well, if we remember that other other countries are going through the same thing. Mm -hmm. And we listen to each other's stories. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think literature can play a role in this as well, too. Uh, we can learn so much from that. And we, we can realize we don't have to jump on any bandwagon. There's, there's lots of options out there. And we just need to be open to what the collective thinking can, can provide us. And you know what else? It's fun. Yes. <laughs> I, think I think it's fun. And um, the same as I think um, of history, but uh, you have to cut up some time for you to yourself to, uh, you know, to, to participate in right. that. So well, thank you so much for being thank on the podcast. It's been a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> and I thank everybody um, for listening today. I thank um, the Tennessee Holler for letting me be a part of their podcast network. Go to tnholler.com. Um, sign up for the newsletter. It's, you know, the Tennessee legislature is in session of general assembly and they're, they're up to shenanigans again. So you will want to, uh, to tune into that. But um, this has been What About Us. I'm Sandy Rice and thanks for listening.